And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age rather than by the spirit of Christ. But yet, tragically, the popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone. There are other conditions to be met. A what? No holiness, no heaven. You don't get into heaven by faith alone. You get justified by faith alone. You get into a position where God is 100% for you by faith alone. And in order to get into heaven, that faith must bear the fruit of love. You will find that it is you who are mistaken about a great many things. Back to the Reformation. It has been more than 500 years since the Reformation. The 21st century church has departed from the authority of scripture and the gospel. We welcome you to listen in as we go back to the Reformation. The views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the churches the host attend. Now witness the firepower of this fully armed and operational battle station. And welcome back to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast. My name is Matt Rosenblum, and I'm here with my co-host, Onyx Siadian. And today we are going to be discussing a new book, and that book is called Christianity Cross-Examined. And the author of this book is a previous guest of ours, as well as a first-rate apologist and philosopher, as well as a friend, and his name is Ken Samples. Welcome back to the show, Ken. Well, hello, Matt and Onig. It's good to be with you again and to talk to you about uh, important ideas. So I appreciate you having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for coming back. Thank you for taking the time. I know you're a busy man. Yeah. Thank you, Ken. You bet. Ken, how come another book on apologetics? And you know, how did you conceive the book? Yeah, thank you for asking. Uh, well, you know, I started doing apologetics professionally. About 1987, I, I was working at the time at the Christian Research Institute with uh, a man who was really my mentor in apologetics, Walter Martin. And in those days, when I would go to the university or colleges and give talks, sometimes to faculty members, often to students, uh, in those days, I always got truth questions. You know, does God exist? Is Jesus the Son of God? Was he risen from the dead? What about Christianity and the other religions? Now, moving forward of 35 years, uh, working at Reasons to Believe, I've been here 25 years. About 10, 12 years ago, I noticed a change when I would go to the university. I still got truth questions occasionally, but Matt and Onig, I, I began to detect that people were asking more questions about whether Christianity was good. They would ask me, uh, you know, has, has Christianity been good for women and racial minorities? Uh, they would ask me, what about the God of the Old Testament? Isn't he very different than uh, Jesus Christ? And I thought to myself, wow, I, I think that I'm seeing a change. Um, in philosophy, we kind of designate, um, you know, modernism as the era of, of truth claims which most modernists, particularly the secularists, try to ground in science or, uh, you know, in, in human nature. But it seemed like I was seeing kind of a postmodern perspective being expressed. And so I thought to myself, um, I think I'd like to write an apologetic book that would address both truth questions, but as well as questions about the goodness of Christianity. And, you know, I have seen two types of atheists. Now, th this is kind of a paradigm, but I'll give you examples if you'd like me to. One type of atheist that I've bumped into would say something like this, you know, may not be a bad idea if God existed. I mean, maybe if God did exist, maybe I'd survive the death of my body. Maybe I'd be reconciled with my family. Maybe it would give my life more meaning. But the problem is there's no good reason to believe it's true. And then I would meet another type of atheist who would say, no, there's arguments. There's at least arguments for the truth of Christianity. The problem is I don't want that God to exist. 
Hmm. And I thought, wow, um, maybe there is an apologetic need to both talk about the truth of the faith, but also maybe to give some people encouragement that, you know, it would be a good thing if Christianity were true and Christianity has been good for the world. So Matt and Onig, that's how I kind of arranged the book. That's kind of the backdrop, uh, the backstory for why I wrote this book the way that I did. Excellent. Ken, in the first chapter of the book, it's called Hasn't Scientific Discovery Made God Unnecessary? You talk about um, science in general, and um, specifically, you talk about the rare earth hypothesis in that book, in that chapter, excuse me. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things, one of the things, of course, we all hear is that, you know, with the development of science, it's just kind of, it's just kind of put God on the sidelines. There's really no good reason to think about God anymore. You know, you know, if, if we've got a scientific worldview, there really isn't any place for God. And what I do in that chapter is I say, you know, that doesn't really fit the facts. Uh, if you went mm -hmm. back about 100 years ago, the early part of the 20th century, there were a lot of leading scientists, um, you know, uh, people like Albert Einstein and Francis Crick and various other people. They, they thought, you know, Darwin has kind of shown us the way in biology and a lot of these leading scientists said, you know, God's going to become less and less needed. But in reality, the 20th century reversed that whole trend. I mean, Big Bang cosmology, uh, whatever you think about that as a model of, of explanation in terms of the origin of the universe, the Big Bang points to a beginning. If there's a beginning, there's a beginninger. Um, as well, and in, in science, you know, the idea of fine-tuning the anthropic principle, I mean, that's not controversial anymore. There's no question that the universe is fine-tuned. The question is, how do we explain it? And that design model, if you will, not only, uh, you know, relates to the fundamental constants like, you know, gravity and electromagnetism, mm -hmm. et cetera, but it, it extends down to you know, our solar system. So we're uh, talking about the fine tuning of the universe. That's exactly right. And, and it extends even to planet earth. And, you know, a decade or so ago, there were two scientists uh, out of Washington who published a book entitled rare earth. And amazingly, they said that, you know, uh, earth seems to be rare it may even be unique. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about finding solar planets. These are planets kind of outside of our solar system. But the reality is that it appears that Earth is fine-tuned for life. We have Jupiter that blocks the Earth uh, from you know, danger. You, we've got a large moon that is just the right moon. And then planet Earth ha is teeming with life. And I, I remember Matt and Onig uh, watching a, a program, a television program about uh, the Apollo astronauts. And some of the Apollo astronauts said that when they were on the moon, it was dark, it was lifeless, it was gray. And then they looked over their shoulder and they saw this beautiful planet Earth teeming with life. And their comment was, I had to come to the moon to appreciate the beauty the elegance, uh, and, and that, that there is so much life on earth. So what I do there, Matt, is I make the case that uh, the, the earth, the solar system, uh, the universe itself appears to be fine-tuned. And, and if the analogy, think of a control panel where you have to have all these dials and they all have to be exactly calibrated in order to have the emergence of intelligent life. And again, uh, I'm confident in saying that's not a controversial view. The question is, how do we explain it? And I think the best explanation is God. That's, that's great. That's fantastic. A follow-up follow question to this, I should have actually asked this before, but um, 
in this chapter, you bring up three instances of convoluted reasoning. And can you briefly go over those convoluted instances of reason, reasoning? Yeah, there. In, I think it was in 2012, Neil deGrasse Tyson, he is a very articulate, uh, I, I think he's, he's either a physicist or a cosmologist, but he is what I would call a, uh, a popularizer of science. And I, I appreciate him very much because, you know, science is not my background. I'm a layman when it comes to science. But Neil deGrasse Tyson was asked by the Templeton Foundation, interestingly enough, to talk about whether the universe had a purpose. And it's, you know, it's just a couple minutes. It's a, it's a video uh, available on YouTube. And so I, I listened to it very carefully. And Neil deGrasse Tyson is a really fine scientist and he is a very articulate spokesperson uh, to, to help people understand science. But his, his logic and his reasoning was, was very, very troubling. You know, he, he would say, for example, well, uh, we don't know for sure, but it doesn't look like the universe had a purpose. And he would say things like, um, you know, anybody who says it does is not basing their reasoning on empirical science or they have an agenda. So what I, what I do there is I say, wait a second here. Um, you know, the postmodernists like to say that everybody has an agenda. If that's the case, Neil deGrasse Tyson has an agenda. And mm -hmm. then, he, then he made the point that you can't say anything about the universe that's not based upon experimental science. Well, you could, you know, there's no experimental science that's going to tell you that truth only comes through experiments. Uh, that's patently absurd. And, and so often I think that you have very articulate but very secular scientists, you know, Stephen Hawking, um, uh, you have people um, like Lawrence Krauss, uh, Richard Dawkins, and they, they're very bright. They've gone to the best scientific schools. They've done good work in science, but they're not philosophers. And right. they, they say very silly things. So what I do as part of that chapter is I critique Neil deGrasse Tyson's presuppositions. And I, I show that um, the, the reality is that I think there's a very good case that the universe has meaning. So we can see that a lot of the time that these guys are actually not doing science at all. They're just doing bad philosophy. That's exactly right. I remember, I remember Stephen Hawking saying philosophy is dead. And I thought, well, that's a philosophical assessment. And, <laughs> and Lawrence Krauss said, you know, that uh, experiment is the final court of appeals. And I, I immediately thought, well, what, what experiment did he get that out of? That didn't come from an experiment. That's a philosophical starting point. So, you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't critique people for having, you know, their own philosophical system. But if you're going to engage in philosophy, you need to be careful. Just like if I'm going to talk about science, I have to be careful. Ken, would you say DeGrasse Tyson is the that second type of atheist who doesn't want that Judeo-Christian God? You know, I, I suspect that that is the case. You know, um, I, I remember Thomas Nagel, who was a first-rate philosopher of mine from New York City. I mean, he's, he is a top-notch philosopher. He's friends with Al Plantica, Richard Swenberg, these big-name Christian thinkers. I remember Nagel saying, you know, uh, there's a lot of arguments for God. And he said, I'm bothered that some of the brightest people I know actually believe in God. But he said, to be candid, I don't want that God to exist. I'll bet Neil deGrasse Tyson fits into that category. You know, there, on the other hand, there have been atheists. I mean, Tom Holland, who is a historian who wrote the book Dominion, you know, he was an atheist, but he looked at Western civilization and he said, you know, I'm a Christian when it comes to ethics. My presuppositions are Christian. Mm. Uh, uh, Keller, uh, Tim Keller. Keller, Tim Keller said, 
in a, in a comment that I thought was very interesting. He said, in his experience, people have to want to believe before they can believe. Mm-hmm. People have to want to believe before they can believe. Well, you know, I'm, I'm an Augustinian. I come from a Reformed background. I believe the Holy Spirit has to do a work in a, in a human heart, a human mind. And I think God has Amen. to draw people to himself. But, Amen. you know, I think we do a good service when we say, hey, you know, Christianity actually has been good for the world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It has natural consequences. In fact, all philosophies have consequences of some kind, whether good or bad. Right. Can I guess another uh, question on that uh, same topic? Then, uh, Outside of the... Uh, your understanding of the Holy Spirit having to regenerate the heart and so on. Do you think that second type of um, atheist just doesn't want to relinquish autonomy or do they have some kind of preconceived higher morality? What's the reason for it? You know, I had a conversation with a, uh, a leading physicist. He was Christian, uh, taught at a uh, university in Oklahoma, and he was telling me a you know, him and his uh, crew of, of scientists, they have lunch together and they, they talk about things. And I, so I asked him, I said, you know, how many of them are hostile to Christianity? You know, they just, they, they don't like God. They don't want to believe. And he said, believe it or not, he said, I find few people, most people are ambivalent. They, they don't, they just don't even think about it. They don't want to talk about it. You know, it seems to me, Onig, that there are clearly are people who, uh, and, and I can name names if you want. I mean, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, uh, you know, Dawkins, etc. The the new atheists, um, mm-hmm. they don't want God to exist, and, and they're not going to give consideration to it. I, I think there is a whole group, however, of scientists, people in the STEM field. You know, and, you know, they're in science, technology, engineering, math, medicine. They've got good careers. They, they're professional people. They have a good life. Uh, you know, some of them are just busy living life. And uh, so there is that kind of atheist as, as well. But, you know, all of us, I mean, one thing I, I, I don't know that I'm a presuppositionalist, but there is one thing that I appreciate about that kind of, uh, uh, you know, apologetic methodology. Everybody has starting points and nobody's neutral. And I, I think that that's, I think that's a very important point to bring people back to. And uh, so a lot of times they don't know a lot about philosophy and they, they certainly don't know about people like Augustine and, Aquinas or Calvin, um, you know, and and even contemporary people like Plantica and Swinburne and others. Ken, I have a question for you. So since we've mentioned, you know, starting points and presuppositionalism, I myself am not a Vantillian presuppositionalist, um, but in that sense, but I guess I am presuppositional in the sense where I do start from the Bible, but I say, if the Bible were true, this is what we would see. In other words, a correspondence theory of truth that confirms the predictions that the Bible already claims to be true. So in that sense, I guess I would be a presuppositionalist. I don't start from a blank slate saying, well, you know, there might be a creator out there and then use some cosmological argument start from there. I would say, well, I think the Bible's true. And here's a cosmological argument, right. That would correspond to prove, or to um, affirm what the Bible is already saying. What do you think of that? I'm very comfortable with that reasoning. I mean, I um, in teaching logic, I like that kind of abductive uh, approach where you're asking, you know, if I believe this, then what right. would I expect to see in these particular fields? If, if you know, if I hold the Bible as the Word of God and I believe in Christian theism what what would what should i expect to see about the nature of the universe what what should i expect to see about the nature of human beings about ethics i, I like that very abductive kind of mm-hmm. sometimes we call it a cumulative case and matt right. i'm i'm not a presuppositionalist but you know i think often uh, rather than focusing on the differences there's a lot of common ground right. among the approaches to doing apologetics 
Exactly. Uh, I think it's a shame when people get so overly dogmatic on the methodology. Yep. Me too. I'm right in your camp. It can be very divisive and people make those primary issues when they're secondary issues. That's right. Let's go move on to chapter two. Who needs faith when we've got science? So you talk about the statements that people make that, you know, faith is, you know, just wishful thinking and, you know, and we have science, which is founded on fact. Can you please extrapolate on these truths? Yeah, I remember one time I was uh, in Fresno and I, I was having a radio debate with a professor at Fresno and, and Fresno is a, an elite school. It's there. That's a very intellectual place. And the, the man that I was debating was a, was a scientist. Uh, in fact, he was a professor of evolution. And he started off by saying, he said, as a scientist, I don't have any beliefs. Uh, you know, and he seemed totally unaware that that uh, science is not independent of worldview beliefs. So when I got an opportunity to talk, I said, you said you have no beliefs. I said, well, let me ask you a few questions. Do you believe there's a real world out there that's mind independent? I said, do you believe that the universe exhibits patterns, laws? I said, do you believe that, that math and logic are reliable means of understanding the world. Um, I, I said, do you believe your, your brain and your mind function well in terms of doing science? Huh? I, I was baffled by the idea that this man was a very smart, well-educated person, but he seemed totally unaware that there are starting points and presuppositions when it comes to science. You know, these are not you know, that math and logic are valid or that there's a uniformity of nature experiments you do on Monday, Wednesday and Friday will be true, you know, Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday. You know, the laws that operate here in our solar system also operate in another galaxy. Matt, I think the challenge is that scientists are so specialized that they seldom have any kind of educational element that science depends on a particular worldview. Now, some scientists know it. Paul Davies, one of the great cosmologists and physicists, I mean, he makes the statement that you can't do science without a worldview, and he calls it a theological worldview. Right. Um, those, are, those are starting points. And so what I do in that chapter is I say, look, for science to be possible, you have to have the, the right kind of world, the right kind of cosmos. It, so we can call, excuse me, we can call those preconditions, correct? Preconditions, starting points, fundamental, uh, you know, beginning areas. You have to have the right world. It, it has to be, it can't be, you know, a random world. It has to be a world with reason and laws, uh, namas and logic from a, mm -hmm. you know, a theistic point of view. And you have to have the right kind of individuals. I mean, Paul Davies says, for example, he, even though he's kind of an agnostic, he says, I'm amazed that humans can actually track the intelligibility of the world. That is, that our brains and minds have the capacity to follow the laws of logic. And then you need some kind of congruence between them. I mean, you know, it's, I remember taking physics in college and and it was about halfway through the semester, I thought, wow, it's incredible how mathematics is the language of physics. And I thought, how is it possible that a idea in the mind of Einstein could actually correspond to the way the universe is? Well, I think what we can say is this, that if God created the world and God implemented his logic and reason in that world, then the reason we're able to do science is because the cosmos is a product of reason. Now, if there is no God behind the universe and somehow the universe got here, maybe it's a brute reality. I think the only thing we can say is it's utterly shocking and surprising that we can, we can do science. Thus again, I think we're drawn back to theistic science. And the, you know, the reality is in the 1600s, the vast majority of the early scientists, they were Jewish or Christian. And they thought God had made the world. They thought we're made in the image of God. 
we can honor God by understanding the world that he made. So when we talk about understanding the world that has been made, you mentioned, I think it's in the same chapter, I could be wrong, maybe in the next chapter, but you mentioned the two books. What are those two books? Yeah, I love this. Uh, It's a metaphor. Um, Christians for a very long time, I mean, I mean, people like St. Augustine talked about the two books. Uh, The Belgic Confession, Article 2, talks about the two books. Um, There have been Christians who were scientists who talk about the two books. But the idea is this, that God has revealed himself in two books. Uh, The first book is not a literal book. It's a figurative book. It's the book of nature. And uh, God has revealed himself in mathematics and, and science and philosophy and, and art and all of these particular areas. That's, that's not a literal book with spine and pages. You know, it is a metaphorical book where it, it is data that God has revealed. Uh, you can compare it to general revelation. But then he's revealed himself in a literal book, the book of Scripture. And since God is the author of both books, if those books are properly interpreted, mm-hmm. they will cohere. Uh, now, Scripture is, has to be supreme. That's, that's part of the sola scriptura uh, perspective of the Protestant Reformation. But, you know, there are times where, where the book of nature can tell you maybe maybe you're not understanding the Bible correctly. I mean, you know, Galileo had to correct the Catholic Church and say, you're too committed to Aristotle. Uh, your, your view that the, you know, the earth goes around, that the sun goes around the earth, uh, that is an Aristotelian perspective. That's not necessarily what the Bible teaches. And so God's revealed himself in these two books. You know, Matt, that meant a lot to me because even though I grew up Catholic, uh, you know, I kind of walked away from my Catholicism. When I returned and started studying Christianity, I, I went to a very, well, it was an evangelical church, but it was kind of uh, anti-intellectual, and I was studying philosophy at the time. And I remember one day I was at work, and I was thinking, man, you know, at church, we talk about faith, but we never talk about reason. And then I said, at school, we talk about reason, but we never talk about faith. And I thought, I'm a man without a country. I, I want to be a man of reason and faith. And for a, for a moment, I thought, maybe I don't fit as a Christian. Fortunately, I had a college professor who said, Ken, you need to read Augustine. You need to read Anselm and Aquinas. And when I began reading these great Christian thinkers, that two books idea really helped me go through a crisis of faith. And to follow up on the two books, I, like you, agree that we have to use or we should use natural theology in our apologetic. I think it's vital. In fact, I think to separate the two would not be correct in my mind. I think that they go together. Um, and one is confirmatory of the other. So the question is, we, we get pushed back by those in our own camp from a, from a different apologetic methodology who say, well, you're ignoring the noetic influences of sin. Look at Romans 1, right? That men suppress that truth, that the invisible attributes of God are revealed through that creation, but they suppress that truth and unrighteousness. So why are you, you know, jettisoning your starting point and going to natural theology when they're going to keep on suppressing it anyway? Yeah, very good question. I'll take you back in church history a little bit. Um, There's a great church father named Tertullian. He was from North Africa, and he's well known for the idea of saying, you know, there, there can never be, there will never be any agreement between Athens and Jerusalem, philosophy and theology. And, you know, his point was that there is a, an antithesis, a clash between, you know, pagan ideas or secular ideas and Christian truth. And he said, you know, Christianity doesn't need philosophy. Now, St. Augustine comes along and he looks at it a little differently. He certainly recognizes that there is a clash of ideas, 
But Augustine says, look, uh, what, what Tertullian has forgotten is everybody's made in the image of God. Everybody is the recipient of general revelation and everybody receives common grace. So Augustine said what we should expect to find is that pagan philosophy for, for Augustine, that would be Greco-Roman philosophy, but we could introduce now secular science. Augustine said what we should expect to find is that they're going to get some things right. Uh -huh. they, they have a conscience. Uh, they, you know, they have many gifts being made in the image of God. And so Augustine said, what we should expect to find is that they will get many things right, but there will also be uh, a clash of ideas where there'll be false gods, false Christs. And, you know, I, I certainly think that God's grace, I mean, I think God is the only one who can get a person's attention and draw them to himself. But he can do that by many means. I mean, for me, I didn't come right. to God based upon an argument. I came out of need. Uh, I, I mm -hmm. went through a, a family crisis where my older brother had, uh, after a long battle with mental health issues, incarceration, addiction to drugs, my brother took his life. Mm. And I was, I was just you know, I, I didn't have any clear meaning in my life. And, and I read mere Christianity. People talked to me about Christianity. And I said, I want that. That's, that's me. I need that grace. I need that forgiveness. I need that purpose. You know, I, I think what we sometimes, uh, we sometimes forget is that the noetic effects of the fall are going to affect your philosophical presupposition but they probably won't affect the way you do math and the way you do science. And so there is a place of making arguments. And I, Matt, I like the way you reason. Look, I, I affirm scripture, but in light of that, look at this cosmological argument, look at this design argument, uh -huh. you know, look at this argument uh, based on morality. So I, I think sometimes our, our friends and our brothers and sisters maybe overstate uh, the noetic effects of the fall. I agree. I, I like what Greg Kokel said one time. He said that when we're showing a teleological argument or another argument like it, we're just showing them or giving them an argument that they already know to be true in the first place. <laughs> Basically kind of almost like, I hate to say it this way, but almost like rubbing their nose in it and say, look in the mirror. You know, hey, Paul says we have an awareness of God. Calvin says we have a, a sensus divinitatis. Um, I, I certainly think we can then say now, uh, if God has put uh, a knowledge of him in our hearts, then we should expect it to see it in morality. We should expect to see it in cosmology. We should expect to see it in our own brokenness and fallenness as human beings. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much, Ken. Chapter four, you say, if God created everything, then who created God? Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's interesting. I discovered when I was writing that chapter that in 2017, the most Googled question about God was if God created all who created God. I also discovered that, um, Richard Dawkins asked that question. Christopher Hitchin asked that question. Bertrand Russell asked that question. Uh, that is a very common question that people ask. What I do in the chapter is I look uh, first at logic and philosophy, then I look at science, then I look at theology. And I make the case that, look, um, you know, if anything now exists, and I think you know, most of us are willing to say, yeah, there is reality. I exist, you exist, etc. Well, if anything now exists, then either something came from absolute not nothingness, or there is an eternal reality. And the and I make the case both philosophically and scientifically that, you know, everything we encounter in life seems to be contingent, seems dependent. It doesn't seem to be an independent reality. So that contingent universe and Big Bang cosmology indicates 
that the universe had a, a beginning. Now, whether you think it came from God or maybe it's an extension of another universe in the multiverse, the universe seems to have had a beginning. The idea that that something can come from absolute nothing. I mean, what is nothing? No, no matter, no energy, no space, no time, no potential, no actual, no logos, nothing. It's absurd to say something could come from absolute nothingness. It's funny. And people don't think about the word. That, that's no a, thing. No, that's literally what it means. No thing. And then I make the case theologically that, um, you know, there are contingent arguments that make us consider an eternal reality. And God is independent. He's outside of time. He's outside of space. He is the first cause. He's an independent cause. And, you know, I, I think that 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 argument is very powerful. And, you know, when I, when I look at natural theology, you know, Leibniz's argument based upon contingency, I think it's got a lot, it's a robust argument. So that's what I do in that um, chapter is I try to show that I think God is the best explanation of why anything exists at all. That's great. Onig, you were going to say something? Yeah, going back to how you said that uh, you came to Christianity because you had a need, Ken. Um, uh, I, uh, I would uh, my situation would be the same. Uh, I also had a need um, to come to a, a reformed understanding of Christianity because uh, I had issues of assurance, and so I think you're absolutely right on target there in regards to why do we approach uh, certain. Um, you know, ideals or understandings because of whatever need that we have. And I believe that the need that I did have uh, was also um, um, provided by the Holy Spirit as well. So, and then he also provided the answer. You know, my, my old teacher, my first Bible teacher, my, my mentor, Walter Martin, the original Bible answer man, Walter used to say that some people won't look up until they're flat on their back. And I know in my life, yep. I, I had an existential crisis, uh, and it was real. And now immediately, apologetics jumped in because, you know, Jehovah's Witness knocked at my door the next day and told me, well, there's no Trinity, Jesus is not God, there's no hell. And I thought, whoa, I, you know, I, I got to do my homework here. <laughs> but, but absolutely, and, and I, think, I think, Onig, that for a lot of scientists— uh, yeah, some are hostile, and then some are very open or embrace uh, Christianity and see it in, in as consistent with creation. But I think there's a whole load of scientists, just like there's a whole load of other people, and they're kind of ambivalent. They, their worldview is sex and money and power, and yeah. they're they're invested in that. And you know that may be a bigger more powerful worldview than naturalism or pantheism, things like that. Sure. Understood. Ken, jumping ahead, yeah. chapter six in your book, was the emergency, was the emergence and spread of Christianity natural or supernatural? So in other words, I guess, was it a human construct or not? Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, you know, where did the church come from? What, how did Christianity, how was it birthed? How come it flourished? I mean, when you, when you think, you know, about 30 AD, you I mean, Jesus has 12 followers, you know, by the end of the century, um, you know, there are hundreds and thousands of people, so many so that Roman officials start saying that there are Christians in Rome and, they're telling us about this messianic figure, and they believe that he rose from the dead. By the fourth century, Christianity has overwhelmed paganism, and Christianity is now the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. 2,000 years later, Christianity, if you accept all the branches of Christendom, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, etc., non-denominational, you, you have a third of the planet, about 2.2, 2.3 billion people who say they're followers of Jesus. How did all this happen? Well, 
I make a case, I, I present 20 arguments for the truth of the resurrection, that the resurrection birthed the church, uh, it changed the life of the apostles, it turned the world upside down, it can, the message converted uh, Saul, who became Paul. And then I also, in the chapter, Matt, uh, I say that uh, God providentially prepared that time for the emergence of Christianity. There was the Pax Romana. So the Roman army allowed for a peaceful world where the Christian message could get through. It wasn't like Syria or Afghanistan, where there's an information blackout. Uh, there, was, there was also Roman roads. I mean, the Romans invented concrete, and they made these roads about 50,000 miles that run through Europe and even in, South, even in North Africa. They built the roads so their armies could move forward and conquer the enemies. Well, the Apostle Paul walked on those roads to build churches throughout, you know, the, uh, throughout what we would today would call the Mediterranean world or, or Turkey. The Greek language. I mean, you ever tried to talk to somebody who speaks a completely different language? Well, the language of trade was Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament. So I go through and I talk about 12 different features that are natural, social, cultural, religious, and even political, but that the Holy Spirit providentially arrange these things to allow for the birth and the emergence of Christianity. And central to this chapter, you talk about the resurrection of Christ. Yeah. You're from a tradition, and I'm entering into that same tradition, Anglicanism, where there's a heavy emphasis on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to me, I think if you don't have this as part of your apologetic, I think you're actually ignoring a, a very a crucial part of not only your apologetic, but of the gospel itself, because there's no gospel if this isn't true. You're, you're right on target. I mean, as much as I, I appreciate natural theology, I cut my teeth on, you know, uh, cosmological, teleological, moral, ontological arguments. Um, but I think we've got very powerful evidence that the Gospels are credible, that they were written a very short period after the events happened. Um, even if you are a secularist, even if you're part of the Jesus Seminar, there are certain things that uh, the Jesus Seminar admits. Uh, one, that the tomb was empty. Uh, two, that the lives of people like Peter and Paul and James and John were transformed. I mean, they even accept the idea that they had some kind of visionary experience. There, there are many arguments that I think are sound. And um, I, I think to, to not put into practice arguments for, for the person of Christ, for his resurrection, for his miracles, that he was the most extraordinary and consequential person who ever lived. I think those are incredibly powerful arguments. And I, I try to marshal them in that chapter. Great. Uh, Ken, I'm sure you've heard of uh, Dr. Stephen C. Meyer and then uh, the entire intelligent design team out there. Um, they're bringing back what's called the hypothesis of God or the God hypothesis. Um, would you hold to any of the things that uh, they're researching? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, when it comes to Christianity and science in what I would call conservative Christendom, I mean, you have young earth creationists, you have old earth creationists, you have the intelligent design movement, then you have kind of Francis Collins's uh, biologos kind of evolutionary um, creationism, or what in the old days we called it theistic evolution. Well, uh, because I work at Reasons to Believe and out of my own conviction, I'm an old earth creationist. I have a lot of good friends who are young earthers and we, we respectfully differ with each other. But there are many arguments that people from the Discovery Institute, Steve Meyer, and many other people make 
that are very similar to the way we reasons here at Reasons to Believe that that the universe uh, it has a beginning, that there's fine tuning, that the design hypothesis is a very powerful one. And, and you know, I, I have to tell you, I anybody who knows me, I, I'm a peacemaker. I'm a, I'm a person who tries to bring Christians together. I'm, I'm always looking first to what do we have in common? What do we agree upon? I, I'm certainly willing to debate the controversial questions within Christianity. I've had debates with Catholic scholars. I've had debates with Seventh-day Adventist scholars. But, you know, I, I think that in the scientific uh, world and conservative Christians, young earthers, old earthers, intelligent design, we have a lot in common. Maybe there's a little more difference with those who are in the theistic evolutionary camp, no doubt mm -hmm. about it. But even there, there is common ground. And, you know, I, uh, I like to think I'm a little bit like C.S. Lewis. Lewis came out of Belfast, Ireland, where there was a lot of hostility between Catholics and Protestants. I mean, Augustine's my favorite thinker. I try to bring people together. And I, I think that I have a lot in common with the intelligent design movement, no doubt about it. Great, thank you. Ken, in your book, you talk about the accusations of basically in regard to why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? Yeah. Why is it continual over into the New Testament as well? And also the inconsistency of religious believers where basically they have killed in the name of God. Yeah. What about these objections towards our faith? Yeah, I, you know, I, I really try to take them seriously in my book. You know, I, I, I didn't try to dodge anything. Um, obviously, we live at a time where people are very sensitive these days about issues of race, gender, and class. You know, there's lots of discussion about uh, racial reconciliation. What I do in the chapter on slavery is I, I, I make a few points. One is that slavery was was a pandemic in the ancient world. It's, it's almost impossible to find a culture uh, in the ancient world that didn't practice slavery. Um, and, yet, and yet in the Old Testament, you have uh, indentured servitude, which, which has more to do with economics than it does with slavery. So I think the indentured servitude of the Old Testament is different than the chattel slavery we would find in Europe or in America just prior to the Civil War. Um, in reality, I think that Yahweh, um, he, he gave the idea of, of a master has moral responsibilities to the people who work underneath him. And in the Old Testament, if you abused your slaves, you could be brought up on charges for that. You know, I'm old enough to remember Martin Luther King Jr. speaking, and King was fond of saying that, you know, the, the arc of history is long, but it tends toward justice. I agree. I think God all along planned to eliminate slavery. Why? Because all people, regardless of your race, regardless of your culture, your, your country of origin, your, your sex, your age, all people are made in the image of God. All people have dignity and value. And I think it's the Imago Dei that in the Old Testament, God guards against people abusing other people because they're in a position of authority. And then I think in the New Testament, I mean, when Paul says in Galatians 3, that there's no difference between Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male or female, all are one in Christ. I mean, in the Old Testament, in the Jewish era, there, there were Jews who would wake up in the morning and say, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile. I, I thank you that I'm not a slave. I thank you that I'm not a woman. Christianity puts an end to that idea. We still uh, have some Christians who think like that, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, we, we, we sure do. We're still battling those kinds of things. But I, I think it is the message of the image of God and the dignity of the gospel that, that in large measure eliminates slavery in the Western world. Now, 
What about killing in the name of God? Well, you know, what's interesting, Matt and Onig, is there have been contemporary historians who've looked at the Crusades, who looked at the Inquisition, that looked at the Salem witch trial, even the Thirty Years' War, often described as a Catholic-Protestant war. And what they concluded is that the number of people and the amount of violence that people have uh, proposed has been greatly exaggerated. Uh, that the Crusades were largely just wars. Um, they, were, they were dominated by the expansion of Islam. And that even the Inquisition, as, as difficult as that idea is, that not nearly the number of people and I would add one more point. In the 20th century, when you had communist philosophies, dialectical materialism and atheism was the, the idea, more than 100 million people have been killed in the name of communism. So I think there are exaggerations in church history as much mm -hmm. as I regret it. Yeah. But I think today people ignore how many people have died in the name of no God. Yeah, Mao Zedong, look at what, 70 million people or so died under Mao? Exactly right. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Ken, you were so just thoughtful, you know, and everything and all your ex explanations. And we thank you for writing another book. This is so useful and I have found it so useful as well. Um, all your books have been useful in my life, as you already know. And um I would suggest to our listening audience that you pick up not only this one, Christianity, Christianity Cross-Examine, but Ken's other books as well. Um, I think you'll benefit from them greatly. And Ken, where can people reach you and, and purchase those books? Yeah, thank you. And I, you know, I want to say I really appreciate uh, you, Matt, and you, Onig. I, I, I've heard your podcast. I've been on it. I, you guys are careful. You're thoughtful. You do a lot of good work. Um, well, I appreciate you, you recommending you. my books. You can get them at Amazon. You can get them at reasons.org. Uh, and there's lots of great apologetic material on the, on the RTB website. Excellent. And Onig, where can people reach us? They could reach us at info at bttrmen.org or back to the reformation at gmail.com. We're on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and we're putting up messages onto YouTube as well. Excellent. And you have been listening to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast, and we hope you join us again next time. See ya.